0: Hello, and welcome to the gravel ride podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. Well, at least for about the next 90 seconds before I hand it off to my co-host, Randall Jacobs, this week, we've got a unique episode. Randall was able to catch up with Ross Roca from pathless pedaled on his live stream, we got an opportunity to interview Russ and all the great stuff he's doing to build a community over at pathless pedaled. Many of you may be familiar with his work, but if not, this will be a great introduction to another content source that I personally appreciate a lot. And I know Randall does too. I hope you enjoy this conversation about cycling community and the future of community. Before we jump into the interview, I need to thank this week's partner sponsor, Athletic Greens and AG1. This is a product that I literally use every day. I started using athletic greens post my cancer treatment because I was quite concerned about the overall nutrients that were getting into my body and felt like I was going down this slippery slope of having to take many, many different pills to get what I needed. I discovered athletic greens, I believe through another podcast. With Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens to help start your day right. It's a special blend of ingredients to support gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. Simply all the things. So it became a pretty obvious choice. And gosh, I I can't even remember how long ago I started at this point. It's probably at least five years and I'm a daily user. I basically start my day with getting my athletic greens, AG one shaker out, putting some ice in, putting the required amount of powder, mixing it up and just drinking it down. I just feel like it puts me ahead of the game every single day. So suffice it to say, I'm a big fan and super appreciative of the long-term sponsorship that AG1 has provided to the podcast. Right now, it's the time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Grains is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. With that business behind us, let's jump right into this live stream between Russ and Randall.
1: Welcome everybody to another live stream. Today, we've got a really interesting one. It's a meta live stream. I'm going to have our guest, Randall Jacobs. He's been on the channel before and he's actually going to be recording his podcast on this live stream. I thought I would double up the content and you can see how the sausage is made. So welcome to the show, Randall Jacobs. Hey Russ, good to see you. (laughs) Glad we're finally getting to do this together. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, so Randall is the founder of uh, Thesis Bikes. He's the co-host of the Gravel Ride podcast, which we're recording today, as well as the co-founder of the ridership Community. I think people know what a, a podcast is, what Thesis Bikes is. Can you talk about the ridership first and then do the podcast part?
2: Sure. The ridership <laughs> emerged as a, a Slack community that we started for Thesis Riders. And then on the other side, the Facebook group that Craig had started for the podcast. So Craig Dalton is the founder of the Gravel Ride podcast, the primary host. He has graciously invited me to uh, be his sidekick and occasional content creating partner. We're at about 1,500 or so people really lively and helpful sorts of communication. So it's a, a community of riders helping riders. Right. And the dynamics that we see in there is something that we're quite proud of.
1: Yeah, community is like a, a huge thing, uh, especially now when a lot of us feel so disconnected with, with the COVID. And you said it's a Facebook group and a Slack channel, is that right?
2: So it started as those two things okay. and then we merged them into a single Slack group called
1: the ridership. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, if you guys are interested in checking out The ridership, I will put links in the description below after the live stream. <laughs> yeah,
2: ridership.com <laughs> is a link where you can go to get an invite if you like.
1: Yeah, cool, we've got 40 people in the chat. Thanks for joining us. Didn't expect so many, frankly, uh, mid-morning on a Monday. Again, this was totally last minute. Randall asked me to be uh, on the podcast. I thought it'd be fun to, to to show you guys how the sausage is made. So if anyone has any quick questions, for Randall, leave those in the comments. Otherwise we'll hand over the reins to Randall and he will steer the ship for the rest of the show. Yeah. Um First off, I want to thank
2: everyone who joined us at the last moment. It's quite an honor that people are so interested uh, in you know participating in this conversation that they'd show up, uh, especially on such short notice. So thank you for that. <laughs> I'm really quite interested to hear, where are you from? What's your background? How did bikes come to play
1: such a significant role in your life? Quick background. I, I feel like my journey into bicycling is a little bit different than what's typically represented in, in bike media. I didn't discover the, the sports side of cycling for... A very long time. My, my basic origin story is, I was very unhealthy, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, eating hot dogs, and I knew that I needed a life change. <laughs> and then my truck died. And I kept super lazy at the time. This is post-college, just graduated from, from UCLA. So I started walking, taking the bus, taking transit, then discovered skating, and then finally the bicycle, because it was way more efficient than a pair of uh, inline skates while carrying gear. So from very early on, I think my genesis in cycling was very transportation and utility focused. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years later, discovered bike touring, which is like commuting with all the things. <laughs> and that's when the Pathless Pedal, the, the website started. This is back in 09. And you know we did our travels, traveled for about three years, mostly on the road. We spent some winters in, in Portland. And after that, after we stopped actively traveling, pivoted towards bicycle tourism. So working with tourism, with destination marketing organizations to to promote cycling. And it was also around that time that I started experimenting more with YouTube. I saw it as a really viable medium to communicate messages and information that just blog posts couldn't do. So that's 15 years in the nutshell. And I'm curious
2: to tease out a little bit more about those early days. Was there some intentionality around getting healthier mm-hmm. or was it strictly I needed a means to get around after my truck died and it, it you know, became something?
1: It was primarily a, a means to, to get around. I do remember having one moment where I have a very obsessive personality. So when I get into something, I really get into something. So I borrow the neighbor's bike and I think I'm biking up and down the the beach path and and Long Beach all day. And at the end of the day, I was like hawking up like half a jar of phlegm. And that's when, you know, there's, oh, this could be healthy too. (laughs) But it's primarily because it was fun. I always try to follow my folly, do things while they're fun. You and I have that
2: uh, element (laughs) of a pattern of obsessiveness on a certain thing. Definitely have that in common. Resonate with you there very much. And so you grew up around LA?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I was born in the Philippines. We immigrated here when I was really young. So for the most part, you know, grew up in Southern California, like Glendale Burbank, went to high school at UCLA. And after that, lived in Long Beach for a span of time traveled. I lived in Portland for a span of time, and now we're here in in Missoula, Montana. Do you, yeah. do you speak uh, Tagalog, perchance? Uh, I can understand it fluently, but I can't speak it fluently anymore. <laughs> cool. So bikes now are how you make
2: your living. <laughs> And you mentioned a little bit about the genesis of PLP. Share a bit more about the inspiration. What were your hopes for it at the time and how did it come to be?
1: Back when we got into bike touring, there was very few resources. There was a a text-based website like uh, Crazy Guy on the Bike. There's bikeforums.net. Things like bikepacking.com didn't exist. The Radivist didn't exist. I think he may have existed as probably not probably, but there was very few resources. So it's not like the Instagram rich landscape of, of bike touring today. So what few resources we did see inspired us to go out. At the time, I was a working photographer in Long Beach. I was doing you know, magazine uh, shoots, you know, food and portrait. And I had this very romantic notion of, we'll, we'll just travel the world on bike and I will book photo shoots wherever we land and we will travel endlessly that way. <laughs> that was a grand vision. Didn't quite turn out as planned. Probably a big part is people aren't necessarily going to be willing to hire hobo looking people on bikes and <laughs> thousands of dollars for a photo shoot turns out. But that was a big dream initially. That didn't work out. So we had to find different ways to, to make a living and, and keep the dream happening. But those were the that was the early dream. <laughs> so this a theme that I hear there, which is common amongst a lot of entrepreneurial slash
2: creative types, which is looking to solve a problem that they themselves had. So you're now doing this full time. Mm-hmm. So this is your job. This is your primary income. It's a job. <laughs> yeah.
1: And how long has that been? I have been a full-time YouTuber sounds like so teeny bopper, right? Content creator, content entrepreneur. I would consider since we landed in Missoula and a lot of it was my hand was forced. Like we moved to Missoula because we were super broke in Portland. Laura got a job at Adventure Cycling and that was finally a stable income for a while. We moved here. And I thought all our expertise and all the work that we'd done with Travel Oregon would translate to Montana State Tourism and the local DMOs, and I could get the production work that way. Did not turn out. <laughs> Did not turn out like that. So I buckled down, and you know, I was like, okay, we have. I have to make this YouTube thing work because Missoula, you know, Montana, they don't spend the funds like they do, like in in Portland or Oregon for kind of production. It's a very small cities. Small funds, a small talent pool, and they tend to only hire people that they know. Right. And as complete outsiders, you know, I was not getting any work. So that's when I really buckled down and it was pretty lean. We relied heavily on Laura's income adventure cycling for me to follow this dream. And it wasn't until maybe two or three years later that it could support me. And now it's supporting both of us. So she was bringing in
2: those uh, big bicycle industry journalist dollars, right, <laughs> to support the thing. And if you don't mind sharing, how did the economics work? What percentage of it is YouTube? What percentage of it is your Patreon? Yeah,
1: I can tell you very little. It is from YouTube AdSense. Yeah, uh, but, that, but as a creator, that's where that's probably the the lowest hanging fruit because after I think ten thousand or a thousand subscribers, you can monetize and all that stuff. But that is not the that is not the, the dream to chase there because it pays very little. Like yeah. to this day, I think the channel is at 120-something 120 subscribers. 120,000. Yeah, 120,000 subscribers. If you work yeah. at In-N-Out 40 hours a week, you are making more than I do in AdSense, <laughs> just to yeah. put that in perspective. So th- there was a really make or break moment a couple years ago where I was you know, putting out four, sometimes five videos a week, just trying to generate AdSense. And I was on the verge of giving up, you know, I had a couple of friends say, hey, you should try Patreon, you should try Patreon. Um, and I was like, oh, I don't, i making five videos. I don't have time to to manage another community. But then I was like, okay, I, I, we have to do it because it's not working financially. And people showed up. First, it was a lot of people that we knew. <laughs> and then it became lots of people that we didn't know, which is pretty cool. And so that started to give us like, on top of Laura's income, another kind of pool of cash that we could count on every month. So that slowly grew. And then ultimately we started selling stickers, which doesn't sound (laughs) like a whole lot, but a lot of people bought stickers. We've sold thousands of stickers. And uh, I like to to say, I'm really just a a sticker salesman with a YouTube channel because it's true. (laughs) It's one
2: of those things where people value what you do and align with it enough to want to advocate for it in the world and just find any means, any excuse to support you. So that's pretty cool that you've been able to make that work.
1: Yeah. And that's what we discovered about stickers. Like, no one needs stickers. It's not like a life or death necessity, but it was a means for people that wanted to support the channel to create some kind of transaction. So we started stickers. We've done other merch. We have some shirts. Re- most recently, STEM caps. Those sold pretty well or are selling pretty well. So it's just a cool way for people that, you know, like the content on the channel to, to help support the channel.
2: And so we've talked about YouTube. We've talked about your Patreon. You also have a Discord.
1: Yeah, the Discord—a big need that I saw was people wanted to find other cyclists that had the same kind of party pace mindset. What I've discovered um, a couple years ago. Is that what really brings people together? Isn't a common interest? It's the common you know, belief and value system uh, yeah. around yeah. that interest, right? Yeah. We all ride bikes. A triathlete is going to have different values than the fixed gear rider, mm-hmm. than a, you know, really hardcore endurance gravel athlete. So it wasn't enough to say, "Hey, we're about bikes." Blah, blah 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 blah. It's party pace. These are our values, and people wanted to to find other people with those values and who ride like that. So instead of being the point of contact for everyone, I wanted people to really talk with each other. So I, I looked at different things like Slack and ultimately tried out Discord, I think because it was, it was free <laughs> or more free. And Patreon and Discord have a good synergy where you know some of the Patreon perks are different roles in Discord. So that seemed like a, a natural fit. And at first people got really excited. We had a couple of hundred people sign on and you know how it is like with, with Slack or Discord, people are, are active at first and they drop off. Uh, but now I feel like there's a, a really cool core group of people. And what I love seeing in the Discord and it happened, it started to happen more this year is other people within the Discord would find people within their area and they'd ride together. They do yeah. events together. Yeah. And that was so satisfying to see that I didn't have to be the only channel that, we had created this this space where people could discover other like-minded cyclists.
2: Yeah, what we're calling social media, I think, would be better reimagined as online tools for facilitating generative offline connection and experience and exchange. And that's not the current social media paradigm. It seems like you've created a space, and and I feel that we've created a space, really co-created spaces together with other values aligned people where you can find that. You can find a place to get advice. You can find a place to to connect, to get a sense of belonging, to plan adventures and so on. And that's something that's a really great opportunity in the cycling space specifically. Mm -hmm. Uh, because there are a lot of people who gravitate for cycling in part for those reasons, whether it's wellness, whether it's utility, or oftentimes it's, I moved to a new place, I want to make some friends. There's something very deep about that need that cycling seems to satisfy for a lot of people, certainly myself.
1: Yeah, Discord's been really interesting for that. The the Discord constantly impresses me because there is such a high level of bike nerdery but also mm-hmm. respect amongst the people in our Discord. And I hope that's because the channel sets a certain tone or I set a certain tone. It's really, it's far less toxic than other bike spaces I've seen on the internet. Like people, they'll, they're pretty good at self-policing, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is cool.
2: Yeah, the early... Uh, members of any given community, the founders, yes, and then the early members really set the tone for how the thing evolves, because it's just a set of norms. And uh, hopefully, you have a certain value system that's very clear. And people who don't align with that, they're not attracted to the community in the first place. Not that they're not welcome. But this is not a space for acting out. This is a place for connecting.
1: Yeah. And there there are people in our Discord that are like way smarter and nerdier than I am. Like I'm constantly impressed mm-hmm. at the level of, of knowledge that they share. But it is one of those things where at first I promoted the Discord a lot, but I'm hesitant to now. Okay. <laughs> Just because I've loved how the people in there have gelled. And for me, it's not about the, the, qual- the, the quantity of, of members, but the quality of interaction. Mm-hmm. So I'd almost artificially... Keep it small until things really gel before saying, hey, everybody, we have a, although I'm doing it now, hey, everybody, we have a Discord.
2: <laughs> we, we've been thinking much the same. Up until now, the community has grown very slowly and organically and largely through our invites or through us you know, uh, just talking about it on the podcast. And people will show up and like hey i heard the pod decided to finally join here and i fully agree with you quality over quantity at the same time i suspect that there are orders of magnitude more people Who could benefit from and contribute to these communities. And there there are certain types of activities, for example, like coordinating group rides. You need a critical mass of people in a given area. And so those offline connections are really enabled by having a bigger community. And so I think this is a a conversation I would love to have with you. Maybe now is not the space, but (laughs) but figuring out how scale can be created in a way that doesn't undermine the the ethos that made the community so healthy in the first place
1: for me i see like a different like a series of funnels so Mm -hmm. youtube is probably our largest funnel it'll Mm -hmm. take all people interested in cycling boil it down to people that are interested in this idea of party pace and for those that want to dig down uh further there's a patreon and then the discord but you know, it's not intentional, but in that way, I see it like, okay, YouTube's a big net. And the more you, you get invested in the channel and dig what it's about, then you'll go the extra step and, and slowly discover <laughs> Discord on your own. <laughs> but I'm curious, what do you see as
2: the limitations of the current technology stack that you're using right now? And is there anything that you're looking at in terms of other tools to adopt or even migrate to going forward? What's on the horizon?
1: I think the biggest limitation is that it's, it's not one thing, it's several things. It's YouTube, it's Patreon, it's the website, it's Discord. I don't sign into one thing and control everything. They don't all necessarily integrate smoothly. And it is like multiple steps for people to to have the full experience. And I don't know that there is an existing platform or, or app with a big enough base that does all things. So at the moment, I'm, I'm at the whim of using all these kind of widgets and, and piecemealing together a community. And then a, a platform like YouTube, they take a pretty
2: big cut. Yeah,
1: yeah. And what's interesting is like Patreon is going to start doing their own video, which I think is interesting because typically uh, YouTube creators that have Patreon, they'll usually do an early release. So they'll set the YouTube video in private. Patreon mm-hmm. viewers can view it first and they turn it on to the rest of the world. You're still using YouTube. You yeah. But, but if you can just have that content live on Patreon, I think that would that'd be interesting Interesting move. I don't know if I have the bandwidth to do Patreon-specific content, but it it is something that I'm keeping tabs on.
2: It's one of the great challenges you can consider YouTube is a a web 2.0 company. They have a platform and they gather the viewers and the, the content creators and ultimately the advertisers, the viewers being the product. And you get to a certain critical mass and YouTube is first and foremost, arguably a search engine. And if that's where people are going to find content and get content recommended to them, it's hard not to be there. But I think ultimately the the paradigm that I hope for and that I see slowly emerging is one where content creators own their content and own the rights over that content and have access to means of distribution that are not so extractive, maybe a couple of percent versus a 50% and Mm -hmm. we can demonetize you and deplatform you at any time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the dream. That's why in kind of the creative entrepreneur space, there's still an emphasis on the email newsletter. That sounds like so web 1.0, but it's one of the few you know, pieces of uh, content and like constant communication that you can actually control. That's not at the whim of an algorithm or, you know, someone else's hands.
2: And it's one of the original open protocols of the internet. Any client can communicate with any other client versus on Facebook, it's, it's a wall of garden. And yeah. If you try to do something that they don't <laughs> like on Facebook, or if you do something that is you know really successful, they'll kick you off or they'll deprioritize you in the algorithm, or they'll just create a copy of it and, and go from there.
1: yeah, and yeah, one like one switch that has turned on in my head recently is you know it used to be that my goal was you know I want to be a youtuber, I want to hit a hundred thousand subscribers and and get this thing, and which is very nice but after having achieved that that is no longer the goal <laughs> it's to turn whatever virtual community we have into IRL into real life and try yeah. to translate that into real human interaction youtube is a facet of that journey but it's not it's no longer the the end goal
2: yeah i'm 100% with you there and in fact it's it was one of the major uh, motivations for me reaching out for this conversation because i see the good work that you do and uh, the quality of connection that you facilitate within within your community so bravo to you on
1: that how many people in your discord i don't know i feel like it's over 1500 okay so, so similar scale yeah the most active group is, is definitely smaller but it's a decent number and i feel like a lot of people that sign on to patreon do do claim the discord like benefit and you can see them light up which is cool very cool.
2: Have you have you done any events? Have you coordinated events? Have you gotten to meet any
1: of the community members? That was our, our plan before COVID. Same.
2: We're going to do a tour.
1: Yeah. It's funny. Like The year that COVID happened, we had just started doing that. We, we coordinated a series of art shows at bike shops. So I, I paint watercolors and we'd have an art show at a local bike shop. We did transit cycles in Arizona, Golden Saddle in LA, Golden Pliers in, in Portland. Because I wanted to give a focus to the event rather than people just drinking beer so it's a fun way for people fans of the channel and people that want to you know do bikey things without just drinking beer uh, could attend and then the last one we did was it was in at uh, transit in arizona and that's when covid blew up and we're like ah you gotta pull the the plug on this tour
2: do, are people able to buy your art or prints of your art? Because I've seen some of your watercolors and they're really cool. I was going to ask you at one point, can I make a <laughs> shirt out of this?
1: <laughs> yeah, we've got a, a big cartel shop. Again, very disjointed. Uh, we're going to migrate to probably Shopify so it can live on the actual website next year. People can buy originals, which are expensive, but then they can also buy smaller postcards and, and prints. Now the prints are pretty, it's like a giclée print on the watercolor paper, and it's about as close as you can get to an original without spending that much. And it's really high quality. So yeah, yeah people can buy. There are options for people to purchase prints.
2: <laughs> yeah, it falls into that category of feeling like a part of something and getting the psychic income of supporting the content that you want to see in the world.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. I know your podcast listeners can't see it, but behind that veiled curtain there, that's our our picking station, <laughs> where we've got a bunch of shelving with uh, stem caps and stickers and prints and Laura. Oh, you're doing your own fulfillment. <laughs> yeah, Laura. Laura no... I, I outsourced it to Laura. Speaking of Laura, how's Laura doing? She's doing well. If you guys aren't familiar, she got diagnosed with breast cancer a little bit over a year ago, and that really threw a wrench in our plans. And so we had to navigate that, but she's on the other side of all the major surgeries. She's just taking a, a maintenance drug for, for the rest of the year, but she's doing well enough that she's starting to ride the, the bike again. Like, I think she's going to do another trainer session today and hopefully Excellent. get into some shape so we can do some actual riding in, in California.
2: Excellent. That's really great to hear. And uh, I see even your email address is, is Russ and Laura. Uh, so, you know, share a little bit about what was her role in the genesis and development of the channel and what is that dynamic like uh, building something like this for the partner?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we've been together for about 19 years. When we first met, neither of us were into bikes. I discovered, wow. yeah, I know. I, I discovered bike commuting. And at the time she we lived in Long Beach and she worked in uh, at Seal Beach. so the commute was like three miles. And then I got her into to bike commuting and then we both fell in love with bike touring. And it was then that we decided, hey, maybe we could make a, a blog out of this. So it was definitely a joint venture. I've been very fortunate insofar as I've been able to to get I, don't, I won't say get Laura into the same interest, but we come to things at the same time or we appreciate the same things. So we both love bikes and she's definitely an integral role to you know PLP. She does all the bookkeeping, the shipping fulfillment, the contracts. She handles all the logistical stuff that a lot of people don't see, but are crucial <laughs> to making a living.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... It's, it's one thing to be the face of something. In my case, same deal with thesis. So little of what it takes to create the the product and get it delivered is done by me, right? I, I contribute my small part and I convey a message and do product development and so on. I have team members who are, Managing the orders. There are factories. There are people working hard to actually produce the things. There are logistical companies that are getting the things to the right places and assembling them and QCing them and and handling all of that. And so acknowledgement of that, I think, is so Yeah,
1: we, we had a pretty early division of labor. Like we knew like what our our strengths were. I'm definitely more of a creative pie in the sky kind of person and she's very grounded typically i'll bounce that idea off of her and she's that's dumb and you have no time to do that (laughs) or i'll know if something has legs she thinks it's it's feasible but we definitely fulfill i think the the two kind of the two personalities that's needed in in the business yep yeah that 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 has been my
2: experience as well (laughs) so really great to to hear about how the two of you work together and 19 years is a is a long time yeah it's a long time (laughs) so good on the two of you so
1: what are you nerding out about these days i think a lot about where the holes are in cycling uh, in particular in cycling media and i still think the non-competitive side of cycling is grossly underrepresented and there's probably a lot more people that are into that style of riding than is the sharp pointy end of, of, of racing I feel like that's overrepresented because the people that get hired at those media agencies or at those brands tend to be ex-racers. So mm-hmm. it creates this this echo chamber. And so I really still think of myself as trying to break the echo chamber, insert a different voice and and speak for that the large group of people that are bike enthusiasts, but don't ever see themselves necessarily p- pinning on the number. And I think I was trying to come up with a good analogy. I was describing it to a friend recently. I think there are like two types of people, right? There's people that that view life as a puzzle to be solved or like a competition to be won. Mm -hmm. And there's others that view life as a a fine meal at a restaurant that's going to end. And your goal is to not eat the fastest, but to savor every bit. Mm. (laughs) And I'm definitely on that latter part. And I feel like a lot of cycling media views it primarily as a sport. So just trying to broaden that message and reach people that feel left out. We've got a channel trailer and I think the title is Misfits Welcome. And yeah, that's, <laughs> that's who I'm trying to find. I love your analogy there.
2: And I, I resonate with both parts of it. Like, I definitely started off cycling ultra competitive. Like I am your classic skinny, shaped-legged white guy in Lycra who was out trying to rip people's legs off. And I, I rode as a kid. I go on adventures and so on. But when I stopped doing competitive team sports, I was, believe it or not, a, a linebacker and a fullback in high school. Uh, about 30 pounds ago. <laughs> and I got into racing in part because I wanted the sense of belonging of being on a team, but also in part it was because I was good at it. And I was like, oh, here's a thing where I can prove myself. And in fact, I really got into it because it's, oh, I want to, you know, I want to get to a really high level in something. And here's the thing that I have the the greatest ability to get that in. So I was definitely fitting into the first category first. Mm-hmm. And now I am very much in the other category riding for fun riding primarily for connection with nature with other people and community and ultimately with myself the, the rolling meditation
1: yeah and my stance is like i'm not anti racing or the competitive side by any means i just think that's overrepresented i'm just trying mm-hmm. to give an alternative voice you know by saying party paces is a thing doesn't necessarily mean racing's not a thing it's not like pizza where there's only one slice to be shared let's talk practically here too it is I believe the
2: bigger opportunity. The ethos of it, I also very much align with at this stage in my life. I think it's this great vehicle for connection. But then also for everyone who's racing or everyone who's following the racing, there's 10 people who could benefit from the health and wellness and community and belonging and everything that comes with this activity that we so love
1: if you think about if you took all the people in the world that could potentially ride bikes these are grandmothers grandfathers small children and you filtered it down to the the small percentage that would race competitively i think the number of these non-competitive cyclists would vastly outnumber the people that could do it at an elite level or even a quasi-competitive level and yet that competitive end takes a lion's share of bicycling's imagination. Like a big eye-opener is during COVID, right? It's huge bike boom, very little racing. Yeah. <laughs> We've been told this, I don't want to say it's it's a lie, but this is truism that cycling needs racing to sell bikes. And it absolutely doesn't. <laughs> yep. There's a reason why we don't sponsor anyone <laughs> yeah. um,
2: other than we'll offer things sometimes to like community leaders or people who are doing good stuff to, to
1: build community. Yeah, I think it's such an old model, like uh, this, this sponsored athlete, Thinking that it'll draw bikes, to some extent it works, but also there's other more kind of creative ways, more effective ways. It's 2021; it's it's not like 1950. We don't need like a cele- celebrity endorsement from someone <laughs> you know, on Witty's box to sell something.
2: <laughs> I remember riding with a pretty accomplished European pro early in my very short career. And I asked him about sponsorship and equipment and so on. He's like, "Listen, you pay me enough, I'll ride a shopping cart." That is the truth of it. The bikes are coming out of essentially the same facilities, right? They're all using the same components. Largely, they're parts hangers for SRAM and Shimano. All these arrow claims about this and that. It's a lot of um, very careful selection and representation of the data. This is much more arrow on the graph, but it's only showing this section of a graph that's this tall, but things like this. But yeah, I'm 100% aligned with you on that one.
1: And I also think the... I think the consumer is a lot more savvy. I feel like it's not when we were fed advertising in the the 50s and you you took everything at at face value. People read reviews. They do their own research. More people are being content creators, so they understand the ins and outs of messaging. And yet it seems as if bike advertising is still the same. It's not very sophisticated. It's, well, it's advertising.
2: Let (laughs) me tell you how to think (laughs) as opposed to let me present some information and let you figure out. What resonates with you. Yeah.
1: It's like looking at how different industries use YouTube, for example, I think is pretty, pretty telling. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of brands still use YouTube as a showcase for their brand video. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at the camera industry, they send out stuff to everyday people. They give their impressions. They probably do product release videos, but they they understand that's not like the main driver to, to sales. Like it's, you know, people talking about the product in real world situations. And, yeah. and, and, more, and normal people, they're not giving cameras to Annie Leibovitz or James Nachtwey—and
2: <laughs> Well, people that others can relate to. In fact, I tend to trust the reviews from smaller channels much more than I trust the ones from channels that have advertisers depend on making the manufacturers happy in order to generate their income. There's a profound conflict of interest that even if it's subconscious, it has to be influencing that content versus somebody who just spontaneously. This thing was so good, I had to talk about it. Or this thing is crap. Or yeah. and I just had to talk about it. Or I just wanted to create content because I thought it would be valuable to other people in the world, which is very much the dynamic going back to community that you know we see in the ridership, and it sounds like you're seeing in your in your Discord.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go back to what you said earlier about trust, <laughs> yeah. reviews. That's definitely something I take super seriously on the channel. At this point, I've reviewed about 80 bikes, was not paid to, to review any of them. And the bikes I kept, I ended up buying. And that's the, the promise. I tell the viewer, I tell our Patreon community, because in my freelancing days, you know, I, I did stuff for Bicycle Times when they were still around, Momentum, Adventure Cycling, and I was always aware of the, the advertorial aspect yeah. of things. And I didn't want to participate. So when we started the YouTube channel, like we get no sponsored money from the bike industry. We don't get paid by salsa, by whoever. Zero yeah. dollars. I'd rather have the viewer, you know, support the channel. And that's why we push the Patreon so much. Yeah. Most recently, I've been buying more products, like small goods. To some extent, we par- we participate in that. We get review stuff, but then I still give my honest feedback on it. But more and more, I want to transition to hundred percent, like buying everything Uh, just because I feel like it lends more credibility. It's very difficult to do because as a channel, we don't make enough money to do that 100%. But where I can, I will buy the product like everybody else and and give our review. One of um, the channels that really inspire me is actually in the coffee industry. This guy, uh, James Hoffman, who has a massive following, I think million subscribers. He'll compare these $1,000 espresso machines, but he has a large enough Patreon where he can buy them all, review them, and then mm. give it away mm-hmm. on his Patreon. And that is what I aspire to, is to not be supported by the bike industry, buy everything, and then give it away on the Patreon. (laughs) It
2: it makes me think of like a a much more organic form of what Consumer Reports used to do, and that was the go-to trusted source for reviews before the internet era. I admire the hell out of that.
1: Yeah, it's it's a long road. When I started taking the YouTube channel seriously, I I did the math. I was, okay, there's a handful of bike brands that would probably potentially be interested in and in, in supporting our content, truthfully, they're going to give that money to the Radivist or bikepacking.com first. In my head, I was like, how can we turn this weakness into a strength? So I really leaned into it. I was like, OK, fine. We'll just take no money from the bike industry and really rely on you know, the Patreon supporters and the sticker sales. It's a longer road because you don't get those big influxes of cash or uh, right up front. But Mm -hmm. we can slowly grow the supporter base. I can't grow more brands that would be willing to support this. I can hopefully keep making more content to attract more viewers to support this. So that's the the tactic we've chosen.
2: By the way, the Radivist was recently acquired by the Pro's Closet. They do great content. And we've certainly benefited from their kindness in taking our press releases and publishing and and so on. That it is hard. What you're doing is hard. Yeah. (laughs) And with Craig, right, we have a Craig set up a Buy Me a Coffee. And so that brings in a few hundred dollars a month. This is not a moneymaker. All that money goes to Craig, by the way, and just offsets you know, basic costs associated with not just the software and so on, but you have to like think about the amount of time that goes into scheduling and doing the interviews and then the post-production work and promotion and uh, social media and all this other stuff. And there is a degree to which... The current web 2.0 paradigm makes it harder than necessary given the level of our technology to support the content you want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm seeing emerge that seems very hopeful is the advent of micropayments and things like this. And so hopefully those are things that we are looking to adopt in the next even six months to a year that hopefully will unlock more opportunities for people to support the content they want to see in the world in a way that was aligned with what they have. You don't have to sign up for five bucks a month. You don't have to pay a membership fee. It's Everything here is for free. If you value it, contribute to it. And here's some really easy ways to do so that don't have some company taking 10% right. or 50 plus percent in the case of YouTube.
1: Yeah, that was definitely an aha moment where you know shifting the focus from being 100% viewer supported as opposed to chasing that traditional model of getting advertising from a bike brand or being a, a sponsored athlete or something. It's hard, <laughs> but I, I think it's worthwhile. And it's ultimately proving the most sustainable. Yeah. Part
2: of my motivation here was this is one way that I can support the content that I want to see in the world. So to the extent <laughs> that we can collaborate to support what you do, please let us know. So we've been chatting for about 40, 45 minutes here. Uh, mm-hmm. Anything else that you think it would be fun to to jump into before we open it up to questions from uh, people who are listening in on the live
1: stream i think we hit the big ones that un- the, the huge untapped well of the non-competitive cycling <laughs> market we have i have an alternate channel called uh, alt cycling with where it's a, a goofy video live stream with a, a bunch of other bike youtube creators and i saw recently that ultra romance adopted alt cycling for his northeaster events. So now it's a thing, alt cycling. There you go. <laughs> I, I haven't seen this. Please
2: send me a, a representative link to a video. If you it. just
1: want to hear four bike YouTubers just complain about being a bike YouTuber. Very, in,
2: very inside baseball.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. We can open it up to uh live stream questions if you want. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So if you guys are in the live stream still, there's 111 of you. I'm breaking the, the fourth wall. Is it the fourth wall or the third wall? pulse of the podcast if you have questions for either me or Randall back Yeah. Uh, your own ideas and perspective on yeah. how we can do things better yeah so putting on your your bike industry hat what do you think most brands think of YouTube do they think it's like a, it's not as serious as like Pinkbike or whatever or it, Cause I feel like as a creator, like most brands are still like, huh, what's YouTube? <laughs> I have no idea.
2: We take a very different approach. So I don't know how others view it. I do know some of the things I see from big brands. It tends to be your classic promotional video, or here's some athlete. We paid some money and sent a camera crew out and did some adventure thing that you can then live vicariously through or whatever.
1: Can I make a confession yeah. that I'm totally bored of that style? <laughs> I suspect that you are not alone at all. <laughs> It reminds me of around 2012 when people were making artisanal everything and they had all these artisanal brand videos and it just jumped the shark. And I feel the adventure bike video genre is is getting to that point.
2: I'll say that early on in thesis, there was definitely a pressure to engage in that. And it never felt authentic. It never felt quite right. At some point I was like, you know what? Screw this. We don't need to do this. We have an existing base of riders. If we just take care of them, they'll tell their friends. And if we just do good in the world and show up as credible and helpful and make content that is of value to people and and help people to get their needs met, and this is where the ridership and so on comes in, then we'll be taken care of as well. Mm -hmm. That's been our approach.
1: Yeah, I've hit that point too, where initially my goal was to grow the channel as big as possible. But after a certain point, it's if I could, if I can serve the the people that are already subscribe. Better, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's actually all the viewers we would ever need. If all one hundred twenty-five thousand joined Patreon, it would be amazing. Like you said, f- focusing on the audience that you do have, giving them the content or or products that they want, and making them them happy rather than some elusive, unattainable goal of of some magic number down the line <laughs>
2: it depends on what your goals are like if your goals are to go big and get rich and whatever then do some big crowdfunding pump and dump whatever scheme collect a bunch of money and then bail or whatever but if your goal is to you know do good in the world then it, it requires a slower more intentional approach and maybe it doesn't become as monetizable but ultimately the psychic income is worth a lot more
1: yeah i saw an interesting study uh that came out about youtube creators and the largest niche of creators where they're actually doing this full time is in the mm-hmm. education space. So mm-hmm. educating about the topic, and that makes sense, right? Yeah, uh, because people go to YouTube to to learn things, to discover yep. new things. And I think to last as a creator, you really do have to have a service mindset. What is it that people want to know about? What problem can I solve? There's yeah. very few creators that can just do their weird shit and be successful. The, the, the PewDiePie's of the world being solely personality-based and not serving some kind of educational, you know? Like. <laughs> and, and I don't envy
2: the attention-seeking drive that often drives some of that content. I'm okay to have a smaller <laughs> uh, community of people that are more ethos-aligned. Yeah, let's dive into some of the comments that we're seeing in here because there's a bunch of good ones.
1: Anything jumping off, jumping out to you? So I'm just taking it from the top. T
2: Shen, oh, this is very kind. The ridership is a great example of what online community can be: helpful, focused, friendly, zero snark, unless you guys edit it out. Uh, we we don't edit it out. I've there have been two instances where I have moderated. And it's always been starting a dialogue with the person and and about, hey, this comes off in this way. And what do you think about taking it down and so on? And those people have gone on to be really great contributors to the community. The type of people that it attracts have those values. So thank you for being a part of it.
1: Yeah, our Discord is similar. I think I've only, in the history of Discord, had to ban two people and they were actively... It was clear that they were not going to contribute in a positive way. But for the most part, everyone's, you know, treats everyone pretty well. Mm-hmm.
2: Here's another yeah. one. I love the pathless pedaled approach. Such a breath of fresh air in the midst of all the leg shaven GNC cycling <laughs> performance weight weenies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I used to be one of those people. Be kind. Be kind. We're we're just dealing with our insecurity.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've been noodling through a video. And I think the title is going to be something like why fast doesn't matter or why fast is overrated. Because this is my take on it. I'll give you guys a sneak peek on the video. Is typically, let's say we take the status quo lens of a bike, it's always going to be viewed through a racing perspective, right? So the, the attributes of a bike that are going to be praised are you know lightweight, aerodynamics, you know, crisp shifting. But that assumes if you're you're racing, and I'd say that's the wrong perspective. Instead of asking what's the fastest, we should be asking what's the most efficient for the task. So if you've got a mom with two kids, is an aero lightweight bike going to be the most efficient for the task? No. (laughs) It's going to be a cargo bike. Or if you have a racer and you give them a cargo bike, is it the most efficient for the task? No. But stepping back... And asking, okay, you know, what is the task that we're talking about? There's one lens to view bicycling and not the the only lens. <laughs> I, I tend
2: to distill things down to first principles in the sense of what is the deeper goal? Is it to be fast or is it to be able to keep up with the people you want to ride with? Or is it like some need to, to be recognized as fast, some need for esteem or whatever, in which case there are other ways to get that met? And a bicycle is a vehicle. So it's ultimately, I think, about the experience. Right. And really focusing on, on the experience, which means a bike that can do a lot of things. Um, and it's very versatile, a bike that holds up and doesn't hold you back,
1: and you know, things of this sort. Yeah. Question uh, Arbalus, how big is a European part of the PLP community? Looking at our analytics and where we ship product, it's a big, it's a big part. <laughs> We ship a lot of stickers to the UK, a lot, a lot of STEM caps and stuff to Germany, Finland. Although not that part of Europe, like Australia and New Zealand was a, a big purchaser of, of stickers until recently because the US Postal Service stopped delivering there. <laughs> and to for us to, to send something to New Zealand or, or Australia, you have to go by UPS and it's 30 bucks, regardless if it's a STEM cap or a sticker. So that really sucked. How about on in the ridership? Do you guys have a big European contingent? Predominantly North America. I haven't looked at uh, the metrics on
2: that, uh, to be honest. I haven't followed that uh, super closely. But we do have a few people interspersed around the world, and even a few who've taken upon themselves to try to local riders so that they can have a, a critical mass in their area. But it's definitely early days and definitely quite US-focused with some density in you know the Bay Area, the Front Range. I've been uh, focusing on New England for obvious reasons of late and things like this. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And then in our <clears throat> Discord, someone shared with me a, a story that they were originally from New York, moved to Berlin, and was able to find someone else on the Discord in, in Berlin. And now they become fast. Oh, that's great. It's pretty cool.
2: <laughs> Isn't that the dream? Isn't right. it the dream? When you're traveling, just sign up for that channel, make some friends, go have an experience. I, I have an idea that talking to our, our technology partner on about like a friend b where you'd Mm -hmm. be able to earn a stay credit that is a token where, you know, hey, I'm going to be in Montana. You'd be able to like publish, I have a room available, and then I would apply and you'd be able to accept or deny. And if you accept, I have a one deficit and you have a one (laughs) one credit, (laughs) and then I can, you know, share my space to somebody who's coming into town. And have that really facilitate community. Obviously, this is maybe more of a post-COVID idea, yeah. but it, it does speak to the possibilities once you have a certain critical mass. So that that's a really great
1: uh, anecdote that you got there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking about looking at the <clears throat> what Ro- the RCC, the Rafa Cycling Club, offers, and trying to see if <clears throat> what. What we could do virtually to our membership, adopt some of those things. I don't know what all they offer because I'm not part of, of, of any of them, but I've been looking at other membership models in the cycling space. And okay, if you stripped away all the competitiveness, where could we plug in? Let's, have a, let's continue the conversation offline
2: because I think yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's a very rich thread there. And in fact, I know that there are some people in, in the ridership also who work in the space and might have something to contribute. I see a comment from Richard Shalmerdine. This is a duplicating question I pose in the ridership, but what thoughts do you have on organizing group rides with respect to liability and lawsuits?
1: Mm-hmm. I'll let you take that one first. So yeah, we live in a litigious culture. Mm -hmm. And
2: it is very expensive to defend oneself, but very cheap to sue. And it's an unfortunate paradigm. You definitely want to be mindful of of who you have joining is is a big thing. And, Mm -hmm. And the values there, waivers can be really helpful. Again, I've mentioned some advising that I'm doing for a technology partner, looking at how to have a digital platform where you would have, say, an identity, And on this identity, you could have everything from an attestation that you're vaccinated to a waiver that you sign to attend a particular event. And then having the event coordination, whether it be, hey, Russ, let's meet up for a group ride, all the way to uh, a 2,000-person Gravel events, be able to be coordinated on the same platform with the the waivers and payments and everything else handled in one place. Right now, a lot of that is disjointed or really expensive in the same way that, say, Patreon takes, takes a substantial cut or YouTube takes a su- substantial cut. Mm -hmm. Um, It's definitely a concern and the deeper your pockets, the bigger the concern it is (laughs) Uh, or the deeper your pockets are perceived to be the bigger of a problem. It is there are solutions and it takes a critical mass of people in the types of communities where those are being incubated in order for these to come to fruition.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a sticky topic. Laura and I have toyed around with the idea of having either an event overnight event at the base camp and, and looping gravel rides or something or this winter meeting up with folks and doing rides to our favorite places definitely the potential litigious nature has turned us off as well as the the covids so we're still navigating those those waters so you mentioned that you're going to be in socal coming up right. yeah so craig
2: dalton founder of the gravel ride podcast also spends a good amount of time in socal maybe we could make something happen at some point i don't know <laughs> if there's demand out there let us know and uh We'll coordinate something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right now we're trying to figure out all. It's going to be a big content trip, basically, as, as well as uh-huh. vacation. So definitely looking for for opportunities to to make some interesting videos. I don't know if you're familiar with the still community. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So Dave Malwitz. Yeah. San Diego. Really, yeah. It's a great group of people. I've been down there and done group rides with 100 plus people, which is pretty, pretty <laughs> astonishing. Um, yeah. and, and Dave's become a good friend over the years. Another one of these people who he doesn't make money off of it. He's spending money on it, but it's, he just values community. He values the, the connection uh, and the creative outlet that the space
1: provides. Yeah. Let's see. There's still 115 of you sticking around, which is pretty awesome for Monday, you, you didn't think we'd get this many people, did and you? And I'm
2: recognizing uh, <laughs> we have quite a few people from the ridership, and I just posted that several hours ago. Yeah, That's I
1: find that funny. promoting a live stream ahead of time doesn't make too much of a difference <laughs> unless it's you know a super well known personality. Otherwise, like people are gonna be on the live stream when it's convenient. So I, I tend not to sweat the live stream promotion too much. YouTube does help out in that a few minute intervals before it lets all the subscribers know that it's going to happen. So that's best thing it could do. So, so Rick Urbanowski has thrown in a bunch of, of
2: comical oh. questions, including Russ, why do you hate beer? And Randall, have you ever successfully <laughs> ripped a leg off?
1: So I don't hate beer. I just like whiskey more. It's like beer concentrate <laughs> and less puffy. Like when I drink beer now uh, I just get bloated feelings. So I'd rather, have whiskey i'll let you take the rip the leg off question i don't like beer either no yeah. That's, it's, it's almost a like a, a sacrilege in the the bike industry you know? yeah alcohol generally isn't my
2: chemical i'll have a glass of wine here and there and i have not actually ripped legs off um, <laughs> it is it is a figure of speech i should be more careful with my <laughs> vocabulary but what else do we have here uh, crispy says i'd like to see a plp and gravel ride podcast Bike packing or bike fishing adventure videos. Let's do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. I'll come meet you some someplace warm.
1: <laughs> yeah. If you come to the West Coast or the Rocky Mountain West, we can coordinate. Yeah. Definitely looking forward to more outside videos this winter. It's just been such a hard year. So Jen Harrington asks, do you know percentage of women on the channel? That's a good question. I can tell a little bit by analy- analytics, at least on the YouTube channel, it's probably less than five percent. Oh, I, I, I know it's less than five percent. I think it, it, when you have a male presenter on the channel, it's just how things are going to shake out. I think our Patreon is—it's not parody, but there there are a lot of women that support on Patreon and very few that, that participate in, on the Discord. How about for you guys? I don't
2: know about the pod. Uh, Craig manages all the analytics there, but the ridership, if I had to guess, it's probably on the order of maybe 10% or so, which is still quite low. Maybe for some of the same reasons you said. I've actually had some conversations, including with Monica Garrison over at Black Girls Do Bike. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen the work that she's done, but really just bringing people together creating events and content that makes cycling more accessible to uh, a community that you just don't see very well represented and it begs the question why and one of the things that i've been quite curious about is what is what role can i play in making cycling more accessible. And there's some easy things to do, which is one, engaging, but then two, figuring out what the needs are. At the same time, it is good to see that there are those communities being created that serve people who maybe don't find things like PLP or the ridership, or maybe aren't quite clear if it's for them or not. I will say this, we want you with us. (laughs) And we want your feedback, we want your ideas. And ultimately, my personal goal is for the ridership to become something much bigger, which I don't control. So maybe it has a board. It has a decentralized governance structure. So we're looking at DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations built on blockchains and things like that. It's a potential structure going forward to allow people to help decide the direction. And I think that sense of first representation, but then ultimately a sense of ownership in co-creation, hopefully will help to merge these communities so that they can join together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you think reviewing so many bike products discourages people from riding without specialized bike? To some extent, yes. <laughs> in a sense of if I don't have these bags, I can't go bike packing. Yeah, I, I, I do think that when people watch reviews, I don't intend for people to, to buy them. They're just usually things I'm really interested in. But there, for, for some people, feeling of, like, oh, I need that thing or else I can't do this thing. Maybe I should try to communicate better that you should bike or go bikepacking with what you have and don't worry about all the small stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah. People were bikepacking before there was bikepacking gear, just like people were gravel riding before there were gravel bikes.
1: Yeah. yeah. I do find like, there's this one camera YouTuber I watch and he had this interesting video talking about the, the dark side of tech YouTube. And the purpose of the video was he was, you know, feeling overwhelmed because he's getting sent all this stuff. And he himself is like a minimalist by nature, but he has to play with all this stuff and seemingly promote it. And he's feels bad when people feel bad that they don't have the same stuff. And that really resonated with me from the bike perspective because there's a few things I, I truly really and they're fairly attainable. Like I, I love friction shifting, I love flat pedals, but I do all the latest gadgets just because i have a interest in them but not necessarily because i want people to to buy them like i never try not to frame my reviews as you must absolutely buy this thing it's just this way i think about it it's kind of cool you might like it there's very few things where i've said this is you you should buy this so i was thinking of doing something a video like that because there's boxes of lots of things which is overwhelming
2: i often in conversations will Tell people, actually, you don't need this. We offer a carbon rail saddle option. It saves Mm -hmm. 55 grams for 49 bucks. And unless you have too much money and you're trying to squeeze every gram out, you don't need this. This is not going to affect in any way your experience. Maybe that that one's a little bit more obvious, but (laughs) same applies to a lot of gear, the hyper-specialized, non-versatile gear that we're told you have to have in order to engage in this experience.
1: Yeah, I've started saying no to lots of things. And there's some things that I just don't review anymore because it's, I don't feel like it can add anything meaningful to the conversation or I just don't use it. I actually don't, like I've said no to so many bike packing bags. It's, I don't like, I don't like the little, the poop bag or the sausage roll. It's just not my style. I'm not going to talk about them anymore. You can buy them if you want, but I wouldn't personally use them. <laughs> I think there's, they're all about the same. <laughs> yep. um, and yeah, so no more bike packing bags on the channel. I'm not reviewing carbon wheels anymore just because i can't add anything meaningful to it i can say that they're light and they they feel fast but i don't have the the scientific background to do any testing or something so unless someone wants a purely anecdotal experiential review i'm not going to i'm not going to review products where i can't add to the knowledge base <laughs> so you're saying i shouldn't send you any new fancy crap and wheels you could but i won't review it you a, man of, I, a man of integrity but it's there's like i'm not an engineer i could read the the press copy and and make it sound convincing but Unless the wheel just shatters as I'm riding, there's nothing meaningful like that to to the conversation. I actually believe that is, that is generally
2: the case, and <laughs> wheels are a prime example of a tremendous amount of marketing bullshit. There are differences. There are fundamental differences, but those aren't what's being marketed. Like the basics of good wheel design. Maybe I'll do an episode on this at some point. But they are what they are.
1: Yeah. Like I, I've been, you know, given the opportunity to review like three thousand dollar wheels, two thousand dollar wheels. Like I, the it just can't do it. I'm not gonna. I'm not willing to read your your press release so i
2: see a comment here from jeffrey fritz he says i am a cancer survivor and was recently thinking about laura
1: glad to hear she was winning the battle
2: thank you for your share jeffrey and yeah i resonate with that fully
1: yeah so. you hear the cancer battle and it is an extended campaign It's a war of attrition in you know, between your body and and the disease it's there's no like quick in and out and there's always there's a lot of collateral damage in the process <laughs> yeah Um, could you share your discord link yes i will put that in the description after the live stream i think like i have to create a new invite or something I, i think i made one video about the discord channel like months ago and i haven't promoted it on the youtube channel since but yeah i'll put the i'll put the invite in the description below
2: jordan kwan says jacob jacobs that's me. The ridership merch. We want to do a jersey. It's in the works. We just have not had the bandwidth to focus on it, but expect one for next riding season. So save your, if you want a <laughs> ridership jersey, we'll get that done. And we'll probably put it out to the community to provide input on the design and so on.
1: Yeah, we've been looking at other products that we could sell beyond just stickers <laughs> and, uh, and stem caps. Ideally, I'd like to help design the bag. It would be fun to do a collaboration on a bike. I do have an idea for a hard good, which solves a very specific problem, but I don't know if it's sexy enough for people to invest in it. But we're constantly thinking of ideas of what's a bike product that we could present that we'd feel good about that's hopefully new, and. but it's tricky. Well,
2: if you ever need guidance on the manufacturing side of things, it's a thing that I've done. <laughs> We've talked about. <laughs>
1: Yeah, because we're the weird place where we have an audience but not that many products to, to sell as opposed to having a product and, and having no audience. So it's like this inverse, weird inverse problem. Yeah. So. All right, looking through here, a lot of comments here
2: and a lot of just I'm not calling <laughs> most of them out because most of them are just kind words. Yeah. Uh, and I just want to say really appreciated. Yeah. Uh, what else do we have here?
1: We've got... 106 people. Um, not seeing any question really jump out. So maybe we should start taking it home and then we can talk offline a little bit more if you want. Sounds good. And I'm curious, and I would encourage folks to provide this feedback if you're a member of the
2: ridership or if you're a member of PLP's Discord, do you see a a place for a more interactive forum where we would create a video conference? And maybe it's not for outside consumption, but it's more just a way for us to communicate. And it's not about two people having a conversation and others typing in questions, but really I would view myself more in that circumstance as a facilitator, facilitating connection and exchange between people. If folks think that's a good idea, it's been something
1: craig and i have talked about in the past yeah it's something
0: like
1: yeah it's something laura and i have like talked about too it'd be fun to do like alt bike summit where you have uh, grant peterson from rivendell there maybe mm-hmm. jan hein anton kropichka just like interesting personalities and have it be like a interactive video conference but it's not going to happen this winter i can guarantee that <laughs> Let's say intention set. Yeah, cool. Well, I think I'm going to take us home. Any last things you want people to know about the ridership or anything? Yeah, the podcast is the Gravel Ride Podcast. I think that probably the most valuable content for a
2: lot of people, especially newbies, would be some of our bike fit 101 and five skills that every gravel rider should know and things like this. We really try to cater to uh, a beginner audience as well as going deep nerd into the esoterics of competitive cycling with event organizers and athletes and things like that definitely more craig's domain on that regard too the ridership.com is where you can go to get a link to sign up. We also bought a Ryber GPS account for the community. And by joining, you get access to that free Ryber GPS account that we acquired. And we do have good things that are happening there. Russ is in there too, not super active, but he does chime in when, when people tag him. And yeah, that's how you find us. And then we do with Thesis and other commercial projects that I'm involved in, we have some interesting things in the pipe, but I'll be ready to talk about those probably Q1 of 2022.
1: Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm going to take yep. us home. Uh, Randall, thanks for being uh, an awesome guest. Once again, definitely check out uh, The Ridership, These Spikes, and subscribe to the Gravel Rides podcast.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening this week. I hope you enjoyed that discussion between Randall and Russ. It was quite enjoyable watching the live stream, so I hope that translated over the audio-only format of this podcast. After all that discussion about community, I hope by now, if you're not already in The Ridership, that you'll head on over to www.theridership.com and join the conversation. If you're interested and able to support the podcast, there's a couple of easy ways you can do it. The first would be ratings and reviews. They're hugely important to any podcast out there. And I could speak on behalf of this podcaster that I read everything that's written about the show and I really enjoy your feedback. So that's a simple way you can help me out during this holiday season. If you have the financial wherewithal, we also accept contributions via buymeacoffee.com. Simply visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.